Our text for this evening comes from Luke chapter 8. I would ask that you turn there if you're able. Luke chapter 8. We will be reading from verses 26 to 39. Luke 8, verse 26, we read this. Then they sailed, that is Jesus and the disciples, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time in this text. Almighty, gracious God, Lord, as we approach your word, we pray that you would be among us by your spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to listen to what you might have to say to us. We thank you for your word, that we can read it, that we can study it. We pray that you would work it deep into our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would bless my mouth and that you would give me strength, clarity of mind, boldness, and Lord, We pray that especially the gospel would be clear, that Christ would be magnified, and that your name would be honored. Help us now, Lord, in this time we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, in the story immediately prior to our text, Jesus and his disciples had gotten into a boat. They had begun to cross the Sea of Galilee. 
And you have one of the famous stories of a storm whipping up, the disciples being afraid that they were going to die, and Jesus then calming the storm. They arrive here in our text in the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. It's on the south uh, east side of the sea, and it's primarily Gentile territory. And our story here tonight is a series of four, the first of which is the one we just mentioned where Jesus calms the storm in verses 22 to 25. And we see there that the disciples cry out in desperation and Jesus has power over the dangers of creation. Then in verses 40 to 56, we have a two-part story where first there is a desperate woman who comes trembling in fear before Christ and Jesus has the power over disease. He says, your faith has made you well. That is, you're saved. Go in peace. And then we see also there a desperate father and Jesus has power over death itself. He tells the father, do not fear, only believe. And she, that is his daughter, will be made well. Luke has been in his gospel showing that those who come by faith to Christ have no reason to fear, but that he is the one who brings salvation. He is the one who brings peace. And in our story then, the second of these four connected episodes, we see a desperate man and we see that Jesus has the power over demons. You can see is just a simple reading, just the the desperate straits that this man was in. He was host to an entire army of the devil's forces. Part of our question tonight is, is he beyond hope? What we want to think about tonight is that you and I have an enemy, the devil and his forces. He's very real. He's powerful. He's dangerous. His desire is for your destruction for my destruction, for the destruction of all that is Christ. But we see that when Christ brings salvation, he then also transforms someone into an instrument for his own service. Our first point, we want to think about the power of darkness. We want to think about the power of Satan's forces and the hopelessness that's attached to it. In our post-enlightenment world, We've been told for generations that science and human reason is the answer to everything. You and I, we're told, live in a purely materialistic world. There is no need for God, and all things spiritual have been cast out in many ways. But the Bible, on the other hand, tells us this is not the reality. Satan is real. Demons are real. They were originally good but they fell from grace. They are in rebellion against God, and they are indeed powerful. And in our text, we see an individual who is perhaps one of the most intense forms of demonic possession in all of Scripture, and it's hard to imagine somebody in a more pitiable state. So Jesus, here in our text, he gets out of the boat, And he's immediately confronted by this man. And Luke tells us he had many demons. In verse 27, he tells us further that this man was naked. He was living in open shame. Sin brings shame. We're told also that he had no home. 
He was ostracized from society. This is, again is the natural effect of sin. Sin ostracizes us from others. And then we're told also further that he lived among the tombs. He was cut off from others, from society, from fellowship. He was effectively living as though he was dead. Matthew adds for us in his account that others could not pass that way because this man was prone to attack them. Mark adds for us that he would go around cutting himself with stones and crying out with a loud voice. He was deranged. He was a terror to others. He was self-destructing. He was a terror to himself. It's a frightful specimen of a deranged and a mangled human. It's a gloomy, awful, desperate, hopeless scene. But this is the vivid reality of the misery and the horror of living under the power of Satan's tyranny. If you look in verse 29, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles open, this man had been seized many times, presumably by the local authorities. He would be apprehended. He'd be slapped in chains with his arms chained, with his feet in fetters. But he would be, he'd break out. He was so strong, he would break out. And he'd be driven then by the demons out into the desert. This man is reduced to a terrorized and terrorizing brute. You can imagine if you lived in the area, this graveyard where he lived, this man living as though he were already dead, who would attack people. If you lived in the area, you would steer clear from there. If you were traveling anywhere near, you would take the long way around in order to avoid him. Jesus tells us, or we see further in verse 30, that Jesus asks this man his name. And he responds, my name is Legion. Now, I don't know if you've seen many kinds of infestations before. Uh, My parents, when they um, purchased a new house a number of years ago, in the master bedroom, Every single set of joists was jam-packed with wasp nests. It was an absolute infestation of wasps. How it got that bad, I have no idea. I've heard of another story, I think it was in the southern states, of a family who had black rat snakes in their basement. And they didn't discover it until finally one day there was a six-foot snake slithering through their living room. Pretty unsettling. But I think you can agree the man here in our text has an infinitely bigger problem, an infinitely bigger uh, infestation. He is host to a legion of demons. A legion was a word used in the Roman army for a group of soldiers, and it actually usually comprised of about 6,000 men, plus often auxiliary troops to go with it. Well, Mark, in his account... He tells us that there were approximately 2,000 swine that went to their watery graves in the lake. And I think that you can agree with me, whether it was 6,000 or 4,000 or 2,000, there was a host of demons in this man. He was in serious straits. There were a lot. We've seen in other accounts in Scripture the effects of one demon 
You remember the demon that tried to throw a young boy into the fire, throw him into the water to drown him? We know of the story in Acts 19, the sons of Sceva, and the power of one demon that overpowered seven other men, whooped their butts, and they ran out of the house naked. This man is effectively host to an entire army of Satan's forces. The infestation of the forces of darkness are terrifying, and it's a hopeless situation. We're reminded here in this text of the power of Satan and of the power of his forces. This man was not able to be bound by human authorities because he was bound by the very forces of Satan. What hope then is there against such darkness? What hope is there for one who is trapped under such power? Well, in our second point, we see the power of the Savior. The power of the Savior. The man stepping out of the boat in verse 26 is Christ our Lord. And we can, we can imagine as he steps out and this deranged man comes down to meet him, we might almost expect to read a warlike scene. If we're imaginative, we can even perhaps see dark storm clouds in the distance from the storm that Jesus just calmed. And we can maybe expect that this man is going to come down in his terrifying power and fall upon Jesus and his disciples, attack them as he had done to others. We might expect some sort of a chaotic clash. But no, we read that this man doesn't fall upon Jesus. He falls at his feet, powerless before the Savior. Verse 28 He cries out, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? That title, Most High, that was an Old Testament name of God, Elion. And it referred specifically to the majesty, to the sovereignty of God, how he was all-powerful, the creator, the Lord, the king of the entire creation. The question that the disciples asked at the end of the previous story when Jesus calmed the storm, who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? The question that they should have known the answer to, the demons, in a sense, know the answer to. We can think back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, 31 to 33. We're approaching Christmas and These are very common accounts that we read. But Mary is told that the baby that she's going to bear is going to be great. He's going to be called Son of the Most High God. She is told that God would give to Jesus David's throne. That Jesus' kingdom and his reign would last forever. And these demons, they knew it. They knew their maker when they saw him. Jesus, he is the savior. He is powerful to save. He is king. He has all power and authority. It's interesting, throughout the narrative, you see this over and again. It's Jesus who is in complete control the entire time. You see in verse 28, what happens there? The demons beg Jesus that he would not torment them. 
verse 31 as well, the demons beg him that he would not, Jesus would not command them to depart into the abyss. You see again in verse 32 that it is Jesus who gives the demons permission to go into the swine. It's Christ who is in control the entire time. We could note further, it's rather interesting that the only actions of Jesus in this account, physical actions, is that he steps out of the boat and that he steps back into the boat and leaves. Now, we don't want to make too much of that, but it is interesting. In Jesus' day, exorcisms were not uncommon. And people who performed exorcisms would often use incantations and magical objects. There would be rituals. Sometimes there would be eccentric physical movements. But Jesus, here in this text, it seems almost as though he's standing with his hands in his pocket. And this demoniac comes and falls down at his feet, powerless. And Jesus, with just a mere command of his mouth, vanquishes the foes of darkness. Jesus, he's not here to show off his own magical arts and abilities. He's here to confirm that the kingdom of God has broken in, that he is truly the heir to David's throne, the son of the most high, and he does this with simply a word of his mouth. Luke here is showing in the broader context, Jesus, he has power over the dangers of fallen creation. He has power over disease. He has power over death itself. And in our text, he has power over demons. Jesus, our Lord, he has all the power. And he has the power to save this man from his hopeless situation. He can save him to the uttermost, even from his desperation. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 36, after the demons have gone The man is now sitting at Jesus' feet, in verse 35, clothed and in his right right mind. And the locals then, the herdsmen specifically, tell the other locals how this man had been healed. How he had been healed, is what the ESV says. But the word that's used there is also used in a number of other places. It's used twice in the next two stories to speak of the woman being healed and of of, of the man's daughter being raised again. But it's a word that also specifically means salvation. Yes, this demoniac was saved from his trials and troubles. From, he was released from the power of these demons. But even more so, he was saved in a greater way. That the Savior had given to him peace. That he had been redeemed that hope had been brought through Christ. Well, what are, we have another point yet after this, but let's pause here and what are some of the things that we can, we can bring out from this? Well, I suggest three things. First, we need to be reminded that Satan and his forces, they are real, they are powerful. When Christianity came into the West specifically, in many ways, the overt, the outward, um, visible manifestation of Satan and his forces were pushed back. And in the post-Enlightenment world, again, I mentioned this, human reason and science were then supposed to explain everything. We live in a purely materialistic world. There is no spiritual dimension. 
Well, that's not true. And it doesn't pan out because you and I at rock bottom are spiritual beings. God has made us that way. And so in some ways in the West, what we're seeing today is that the door is being opened and that more people are starting to dabble in things like witchcraft, in the occult, Ouija boards, Wicca, things of this nature. We see even that a lot of Eastern um, religions have started to creep into our culture. Just one example is the New Age movement. It comes across as being a very positive kind of thing, positive thinking. And if we were all to just harness our own positive inner feelings and sentiments, then we could bring in this, this utopian age. There's a lot of stuff like, a lot of seminar, seminars that they host in the business world as well. These positivistic business models. But at rock bottom, the New Age and many of these other cultic religions, the leaders, they are just that, occultic. And that's what they're dabbling in. That's where they spend their time. A lot of these leaders are mediums. What that just simply means is that they communicate with these spiritual beings that are outside of the merely physical realm. And so as Christians, we need to take heed against these things. We are not to dabble in these things, even in the form that we read this morning for the preparation of the Lord's Supper. It warns us not to dabble in any of these things. We need to also, I would say, be careful with what entertainment we allow into our homes because another way that a lot of this stuff has been becoming more and more manifest in our culture is through entertainment. You think of the prevalent, prevalency of horror films and, and thrillers and so forth. Now, not all of it's demonic. I don't want to say that. But we need to take heed. We need to be careful about often what we allow in on our screens as well. And so, young people, I'd say to you especially, if your friends are curious about this stuff, if they're dabbling in this in various ways, avoid it. Run from it. Do not give in to this. Now, perhaps you're saying, okay, well, I've never seen any kind of specific demon possession. Praise God for that. I have not either. Bishop Ryle, an English bishop from over 100 years ago, He noted this, that possession already in his day was very rare. But he said, let's not forget that the devil's fearful power is over many hearts and souls. He still urges many in whose hearts he reigns into self-dishonoring and self-destroying habits of life. We might not see much demon possession today in our own immediate surrounding culture and area, but the devil still drives people to self-destruction and to wickedness. Think of what we read in Ephesians 6, for we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. My friends, there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of light Versus the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God, versus the kingdom of Satan. And it is war. It is war between these two kingdoms. The fight is real, and the fight with sin is real. 
And the Bible tells us that Satan has been sinning from the beginning. 1 John 3 verse 8. The reason that the Son, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible tells us Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do that? How did he do that? Our Savior, he did this on the cross. When he put the rulers and the authorities to open shame. Not just human rulers and authorities, but the rulers and authorities of the kingdom of Satan. And he triumphed over them. The power of Satan was broken when our Savior hung on that cross and Genesis 3 verse 15 was fulfilled. That the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus, his heel was bruised, but Satan was crushed. And through then the resurrection and the ascension and the reign of Christ, the true heir of David's throne, and through his imminent return again, All of God's enemies, all of your enemies, the devil and all of his forces, they are being put under the very feet of Christ. And in our story, Christ did not yet immediately cast the demons into the abyss, but in the end he will. Revelation tells us more about this abyss, the bottomless pit, the lake of fire. And my friends, the devil and his entire kingdom will be cast into the lake of fire forever, never again to be seen. Praise God. We can say further, this has application for our evangelism as well. Would you have considered that this demoniac was too far gone? Think about it. If we're honest, how many times have you and I not looked at other people? The drunks? The junkies? No, too far gone. The wealthy or the intellectuals? They'll never come. They're too smart. They've got it all. They don't need Jesus. Criminals? Ex-convicts? No, there's, there's no hope for them. If you and I are honest, we've had these thoughts. I preached on this text over the summer and it was interesting no sooner had I done so than I found myself at a coffee shop and I saw there a man that I had known years before and what I thought almost right away when I saw him I could tell right away man he's still just living the same old sinful lifestyle he still looks like he's homeless he still looks like he hasn't gotten his life together This is how we so easily view those who are outside of Christ. There's no hope for them. They're completely hopeless. They're completely destitute. Christ can't save them. My friends, we need to believe that the power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that the power of the Holy Spirit is able to redeem from the kingdom of darkness, able to redeem even those who are the most hopeless. By implication then, able to save all others, any other. You and I, we need to believe this. We need to be reminded of this often. That Jesus, he was able to save this demoniac with a legion of demons. He saved you. He saved me. He is able to save others. We need to believe this. Our Savior, he's all-powerful. He is able to redeem completely.
But again, we must also say, this has implication for us in terms of personal sanctification. Do you struggle with sin? We all struggle with sin. Are you struggling, perhaps, in more aggravated and maybe aggressive assaults of Satan? Are you struggling maybe more so with with pride, with anger? Are you easily provoked? Do you easily lie? Do you struggle with, with drinking? Do you let silly things bring disunity to you, to others? Are you lazy? Do you waste your time? Are you addicted to social medias or, or entertainment or, um, social, or video games? Perhaps it's sexual sin, lust, pornography. Perhaps you've been happily married for many years, but then you suddenly find yourself wondering, hmm, maybe I like her more. Maybe I like him more. My friends, as we think about the power of Christ in this text, we need, to be remember, we need to be reminded again that Christ has power over Satan and he has power over our sins. Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the power of the devil, to free you and me from our sins. You and I need to know that sin is destructive. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you need to know it is shameful and it leads ultimately to death. But thanks be to God that through Christ we have redemption, that he came to free us from our sinful ways and that when he died on the cross to purchase you and me with his precious blood, he transferred us from the kingdom, the domain of darkness, into the kingdom of his glorious light. Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died, that is with Christ, has been set free from sin. You and I need to be reminded of this. We need to come back to this truth again and again that Jesus Christ died to set us free from sin. And he gives us his spirit for this very thing. And we want to say we don't just sit and hope that God will just zap us with his power. We want to say also that there are practical things that that we can do and that we need to do. Perhaps simple things. Watch less sports. Play less video games. Maybe one less episode on, on Netflix. Get a little more sleep so you're less grouchy. Maybe accountability for alcohol. Maybe blockers on your phone to guard your time. Maybe something, a program like Covenant Eyes or something else to help you fight against lust. But at the heart of it, we need to come back to this again and again and again in our fight with sin, that Jesus Christ, he has power over the devil, over his forces, that he has power to set you and me free from sin. When we fall, we need to go back to that again and again and again. Jesus Christ, he is all-powerful, and he is the Prince of Peace, and he has come to give us peace. Well, we run on to our our last point here this evening. The demons have gone out from this man. This man has been saved, and we're not going to say much about the pigs. Uh, Luke doesn't focus on them. Uh, We want to say Jesus permitted the demons to go out. 
He did not command them to destroy the pigs. We're reminded again of the destructive nature of Satan's forces. That's what they want to do. They just want to kill and destroy God's creation. What Luke does focus us on is a twofold response. That the locals, they're afraid at the presence of Christ, but then at the former demoniac, he has been saved. He has been set free, and he is a disciple. Verse 34, we see that the herdsmen who just watched hundreds and hundreds of their pigs rush violently down to their watery graves into the lake, they flee. They're out of there. And think about it. You can't blame them in a sense, right? They knew the power of the demoniac. They knew the power that was there. And it's a simple principle. If you are out hunting in, I don't know, the wilderness and somewhere, you're surrounded by a couple of ferocious wolves, and then suddenly they hightail it out of there, you know that there is something stronger that's coming. It's not a perfect illustration, but that's the the simple principle for people who were steeped in a world where, where demonic activity was common. They knew the power that exercised these demons must be so much greater. And they are terrified. The whole group of them, all the garrisons, all the locals, they ask Jesus to leave. Notice in verse 37, because they are seized with a great fear. It's ironic that before they would have been fearful of this man and this man himself would have been seized by these demons. These people now, in, in the presence of Christ, they are seized by this fear of this man who is here. And the irony The irony as well is that these herdsmen, they reject the good shepherd. They reject the one who is able to bring peace. My friends, there is a fear that drives us to Christ. But there is also a fear that drives you away from Christ. That if you're not in Christ, then you have every reason to fear him, the God-man, the king, the son of the most high God. Because one day, he will cast the devil and all of his forces and all those who do not believe in his name, he will cast them into the abyss, into the lake of fire. But the call of the gospel, if you are not a Christian here today, if you're listening online, the call of the gospel is to not be afraid, but to come to Christ to find peace at the foot of the cross. But the second response, we've seen how Jesus is rejected, but then we see also how the demoniac is now a disciple. In verse 35 there, he is sitting at the feet of Jesus in humble submission. It is the posture of a disciple. And the demons through this formerly naked and deranged man, had begged Jesus not to torment them. It's interesting. Now, this clothed and in his right mind man begs Jesus. Verse 38, this is beautiful. He begs him simply to be with him. What a beautiful response. To be with the one who set him free, the one who brought him peace. But Jesus does not grant him his request. He tells him instead, 
Last verse of our text, he tells him, go home, declare what God has done for you. And what does he do? He does exactly that. He goes home and he declares how much Jesus has done for him. The deeper irony in the text is that Jesus did not really leave, in a sense, his homegrown evangelist is sent back to infiltrate his own local towns and cities, proclaiming the amazing salvation in Jesus. And so often, we can think that those who are to proclaim the gospel are those who are formerly, formally called as missionaries, missionaries or evangelists. Have you ever thought that? Well, there's a beautiful application in this text for you and for me that you and I are called to be ambassadors for Christ and that this same call to this man has a, has a call on our lives as well to go home, go to your home, go to your workplace, your local mall, your local grocery store. Go, tell it in your towns and your cities. Go, tell your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. Go and tell of the mercy of God, the mercy that God has had on you in Christ. Tell of how much Jesus has done for your soul. That you were once dead, but you are now alive. And that you have peace in Jesus' name. And maybe, maybe, you and I need to ask ourselves, could it be that often we are so slow to tell others the gospel because often we have forgotten the amazing things that Jesus Christ has done for our soul? Have you forgotten what Christ has done on the cross for you? Has his cross become cheap? Have you forgotten that apart from grace, you would be hopeless and desperate? That apart from the gift of faith, you would be chained by your sins in the dark dungeons of Satan's kingdom? Have you forgotten that apart from the love of God to you through Christ's redemption, you too would one day be cast into the abyss. You and I, we need to go back to this again and again. How much has Jesus done for our souls to redeem us, to give us life? I came across a story of the Gofa people in southwest Ethiopia. There were evangelists who wanted to bring the gospel to these people, to the Gofa people. And so they went, a number of them, they brought their families. They built houses, they planted crops, they preached the gospel to neighbors. People were converted, but too much had changed. Less people were going to the witch doctors. Less people were paying taxes to the cultic priests. Less people were slipping bribes to the government officials for favors. And so, a police lieutenant was sent out to arrest one of these evangelists. The man's name was Atero, the evangelist. And so they clapped him in in wrist chains and put uh, irons on his ankles and they paraded a tarot through the marketplace as an example of what would happen to those who followed this new religion. A tarot was then ordered to go back to his own village and they told him, take your Jesus with you. We don't want him. Ataro hopped forward and he, he said to the officer, Sir, 
I need to tell you, I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I planted Jesus in Gopha. He is planted in the hearts and the souls of the Gopha people. I can go, but Jesus will stay. What a beautiful response. The irony in our story tonight is that Jesus might not have been physically present there anymore, but he stays through because of the fact that there was on the loose now in the territory of the Gerasenes a demon-deprived evangelist who could not stop talking about the wonderful things that Jesus had done for him. My friends, Jesus is not physically present here in Merrillville, in Cherville, in Crown Point, in Cedar Lake. But if you and I are Christians by faith, then the power of God is planted here in Northwest Indiana. The power of the gospel is here. And you and I are called with this same commission to go and to tell the beautiful message of the gospel to those around us. And as we go, we have the beautiful hope that Jesus Christ is powerful to destroy the works of the devil and that he is powerful to redeem those who are lost in darkness. May God help us. May God help us that we would simply desire to be with the one who has brought us peace and that we would then go to others to tell them of the peace that is found in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, almighty, awesome King, we pray that you would help us indeed to have greater faith, that we would know your power, your power to save through Christ, that we would rejoice at the the wonderful salvation that you have given to us, that you would help us to think about these things, that we would then also go and tell of the wonderful things that Jesus has done for us, that he has died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, that he has given us new life through the Spirit. Lord, would you help us then to go? Lord, we can be fearful often to talk to our neighbors. Some of us will be good at it. For some of us, it will be a struggle. For some of us, all that we can do is pray. But we ask, O Lord, that individually and as a church community, you would aid us more and more to desire to tell those who are lost in darkness of the great and wonderful things of Jesus Christ. Help us in this, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.